Amen. That video is a, just a great overview of, of where we've been and, and where we're going as well as we've been on this journey in Exodus. And, uh, but right now in our story, the people of God have been freed from Pharaoh and Egypt. They've had the plagues. They've crossed through the Red Sea. And now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they're beholding the glory of God as, as God is, God is kind of dwelling at the top of Mount Sinai. And, and they see the lightning and the thunder. And, and this is where God gives them the instructions for the covenant. The law that will guide them in their life. Now, too often as, as Christians, we get to the law part of uh, the scripture of the Old Testament and our eyes begin to glaze over, especially when we're reading this. And we have a hard time reading and paying attention to the law. I understand that. Or even worse, we have a, a wrong understanding of the law. But what is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of this section of the law? Well, it's the same purpose of the law that we have today. We have laws in our government, in our society. We have laws to protect society and in order for us to live together in community. It's the same with the nation of Israel. This was God's law for how the people lived together in community and how they could live faithfully with God. The law was good. The law is good. And again, I need to remind you that the Exodus story is the primary story of salvation in the Old Testament. It is the story of salvation. We, we need to understand that. We get such an incredibly important image of who God is and who we are as well from this story. We serve a God who chooses to free enslaved people. But not just rescue them, but be in relationship with them. To dwell with them. That's, that's the amazing thing. That's what I think is so amazing about the God that we serve. And as the people have come out of Egypt, they're now at the foot of Mount Sinai. Can you picture it? There it is, Mount Sinai. I want you to think about it. Think about being there. How would you feel? I think the people, when they arrive there at Mount Sinai, they're a little bit in shock, if not truly in shock. They have just experienced the power of God and in magnificent ways, through the ten plagues, through the crossing the Red Sea. And now they're at the foot of the mountain, and God is encircling the mountaintop. And lightning and clouds and thunder. And, and they are overwhelmed. This is a powerful God that they are serving. This is a powerful God they're serving. And God calls Moses to come up to the top of the mountain and speak with him. Now, if you've been reading along in Exodus, up to this point, up to chapter 19... It's, pro it's been consistently kind of narrative, but if you've been reading along in our Bible reading plan, you'll notice that it kind of shifts tone and, and structure right around verse 19, 20. 
And uh, it changes here. The first 18 chapters have been the story. We've had this story, you know, the, the plagues, the Red Sea, Moses, his life, that whole thing. And now we're in, in chapter 19 is kind of this pivot, this hinge of this story. In 19, we get the Ten Commandments. Uh, in 19, is it, they're at Mount Sinai. And then in chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments where uh, God is giving them the law. And then we get all of these various laws and these festivals and how to obey the festivals and how to do these laws from chapter uh, 21 through 23. And then we have a little bit of narrative in chapter 24. And that you saw that in the video as well. Uh, and Moses is speaking to God for 40 days as God has given him the law. And then in chapter 25, God gives Moses the requirements for making the tabernacle. And all the stuff that goes in the tabernacle. And this goes on all the way through chapter 31. So from 25 to 31 we have these requirements for building the tabernacle. And that's when it's interrupted by another narrative in chapter 32. It's that whole golden calf incident where the covenant is almost broken completely and destroyed as the people of God make this idol. And then this narrative goes on for a couple of chapters. And then in chapter 35, we get almost a complete retelling of the same stuff we heard in chapter 25 through 31. So if you're reading in chapter 35 through 40 and you're thinking to yourself, I think I've read this before. You have. You read it in chapter 25 through 31. It's almost the same stuff. In chapter 25 through 31, it's the requirements for how to build this. In chapter 35 through 40, it's this is how we built this. Make sense? So we have the second half of Exodus is just focusing on uh, the law and the tabernacle. That's kind of the main two pieces of the second half of Exodus. The law and the tabernacle. And I want us to begin to get a better understanding of these two important elements of the story. If you'll go to the next slide. The law and tabernacle. That's what we're going to be focusing on this, this morning. These two key elements of this story. Now this is the part that we get bored reading. Right? Admit it. Right. But that's okay. We're, we're, I'm going to hopefully under, un, unpack it and understand it. Law. When we look at the law, too often as Christians, as I said earlier, sometimes we even think of the law as something that's bad, something that uh, we want to do away with, we can just ignore. And we tend to even skip over it. When was the last time you read Leviticus and liked it? Right? We, we, we just like, oh, let's just do away with Leviticus uh, or Deuteronomy. Uh, but I think this is misguided for several reasons. I'm not sure how we got this wrong-headed idea about the law. For even the Apostle Paul says this in Romans. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Again, this is where I think it is helpful for us to place ourselves in the story. How many times have we said over this whole series, this is not their story, this is our story. And so I want us to place ourselves in this story and imagine again. Pretend with me for a moment. You're at the foot of Mount Sinai. You just saw the picture earlier. You're in the middle of the desert. You're hot. 
you're sweaty, you probably smell pretty bad as well. You're tired, you're probably not even sure where you are actually. You're out in the middle of the desert. You've never been here before. You're an Israelite. You are part of one of the 12 tribes from Jacob. Your family has been in Egypt for 400 years. And for most of those years, your family has been enslaved. Can you picture it? Can you smell it? Can you feel it? You're tired. Who are you? You're probably not even sure who you are at this point. You've been told your whole life who you were, a slave. Your taskmasters told you who you were. You were a nobody. You were nothing. You were property. And so you just recently went from slave status to chosen people of God and being set free. How are you supposed to live in this new status as a free person? What does this God, Yahweh, require? What kind of God is he? You're not real sure. Enter the law. The law is given so that you know who God is. So you know his character, his requirements, his relationship with you. So you will know what good is. Can you imagine? You have been enslaved for so long that you probably have no idea what good is, what bad is, what right is, what wrong is. You don't know anything. It reminds me of a girl I met recently. She grew up the daughter of a drug-dealing mother. She had no idea what normal was. Abuse for her was normal. Living in seedy motel rooms for weeks on end with strangers was normal. Dealing and doing drugs was normal. At 10 years of age, living on her own, taking care of her younger brother and having no idea where your mother is or where she's, when she's coming back is normal. Moving from place to place constantly to outrun the police and because you had no place to lay your head was normal. In her early 20s, she and her mother's drug dealer are having a conversation about getting out of this life. And literally they're asking each other, what do normal people do? We have no idea. They had no idea what it meant to be normal. It's the same with these Israelites. They have no idea what it means to be free people. They have no idea what it means to be good or what good is. They had been enslaved for so long they had no idea what normal was. Enter the law. The law was a way for the people of God to know who God was and who they were. The law showed them that God was good. He wasn't a God unlike the other gods of the area who required human sacrifice. No. The law said no. 
He despised human sacrifice. He was a God who wanted justice. He was a God that took care of the outcast and the widow and the orphan and the alien. He was a God that was independent of creation, outside of the created order. He didn't use magic and he didn't want his people using magic. He despised prostitution and adultery and temple prostitution, unlike the other gods. He despised the abuse of women and children. He was good. The law created stability and holiness and family. It was good. It was designed to give the people a footing and an understanding of who God is and who they were. Now, as we move into the New Testament, we see that it isn't enough. It isn't enough. But the purpose of the law was to change our hearts. The law was good, but our hearts were bad. As we saw in the video, we needed transformed hearts. And we see Jesus came to transform our hearts. To help us fulfill the purpose of the law. To love God and to love others. But even Jesus declared in Matthew, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. The law served its role in shaping the people. But it would be Jesus who showed us how to truly live the law in spirit and in truth with transformed hearts. So that's the first important element that we see here at Mount Sinai is the giving of the law. But there's a second important element as well, and that's the tabernacle. The tabernacle and the imagery surrounding it and the temple later on is an important image that we will see over and over and over again throughout our Bible. And so we need to understand this imagery of the tabernacle. We read in Exodus 25 these words. God says, have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell amongst them. The word there for sanctuary, it means a dwelling place. Have them make for me a dwelling place. The tabernacle, it's, it's just a giant tent. That's all it is. You can see the picture, a depiction of what the tabernacle looked like. It was a place of dwelling for God. And we see that the people of God at this time, where did they live? They lived in tents. So the dwelling place of God will also be in tents. You get this idea that God wanted to dwell with us? Later on, when the, the people of Israel settle down in the promised land and they go from tents to living in houses, where will God's dwelling go from? It will go from the tabernacle to the temple. Why? Because God wants to dwell with us. The people of God transformed from dwelling in tents to dwelling in homes. Why is this important? Why is this imagery important? Because we have seen since the beginning, since Genesis, that God desires to dwell with us. We serve a God who wants to be in relationship with us. Here in the tabernacle, we see God dwelling with his people on earth 
for the first time since the Garden of Eden. Remember? The tabernacle, in a sense, is recreating Eden, the dwelling place of God and humans. And we see it in this elaborate detail that Moses is given in how to construct the tabernacle with its designs and imagery that kind of is an image of a garden. And the tabernacle had three different primary areas. You can see the outer court where all the, the people are dwelling out there. That's any uh, clean Israelite could worship in that outer court. And it had inside a holy place. And you can see the, the smaller tent within the, the big tented area is the holy place. And then inside the holy place was the holy of holies. That was said to be where God dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. And we see the holiness of this area increasing as you get closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. As I said, any clean worshiping Israelite could enter into the outer court. Only priests could enter into the holy place. That's that first uh, curtained area, that first place the priest could enter in. And only the high priest could go into that last spot on the far left the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and the Ten Commandments were in there. And only the high priest could go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. Can you imagine being that priest going into the Holy of Holies on that one day? This was where God dwelled. And there were these extreme rituals that the high priest had to go through, these rituals of of purification and cleansing to get ready to even go into that holy of holies because you're about to be in the presence of God. You really don't want any unconfessed sin before you go into the presence of God. You really want to be clean before you go into the presence of God. In fact, they made the high priest wear these little bells on his uh, tunics as he went into the holy of holies so they could be outside listening to make sure he's still alive. Are the bells still jingling? Yeah, okay, God has approved of him. And he hadn't died yet. Can you imagine? All of these requirements, these measures that were taken for holiness were to remind us that God lived here. That God is present. And we shouldn't take it lightly that we're in the presence of a holy God. Are you getting the picture? Here is a holy irony of this whole experience, the law and the tabernacle. There's this irony in it. And and again, this was to teach the people the story of redemption. Listen, pay attention. This is important. If you miss this, you have missed the Bible. This is important. This isn't just some weird ritual. It is instructive. All teachers know that the best way to teach someone is to actually do it. You have to do it. I can't just tell you. You have to experience it. You have to walk through it. All of this was done. The The tabernacle, the law, all of this was done. The rituals, the sacrifices for the people to understand who God is and who they are. And we see this clearly. It is set up so that we can see clear who God is and who we are. The structure, here's the irony. The structure of the tabernacle shows us That we serve a God who desires to dwell with us, right? 
That's the first thing we've been talking about. But the increasing holiness and the restriction on how you come into the tabernacle communicates this separation from God. That separation because of our sin. The separation because of our sin, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because of our sin, we broke the garden. We broke the world. So we have a a holy God who desires to dwell with us, but because of our sin and brokenness, we have broken that relationship and broken the world. You see the struggle? God is holy, but we are broken and sinful. God desires to dwell with us, but our sin separates us. The elaborate sacrifices and the rituals showed the people how important the holiness of God was and how terrible Our sin was. These sacrifices, it created a bloody mess. It is gruesome. It is horrible. And you're supposed to experience that. Your sin has broken the world. Your sin has broken the world. Your sin is the reason we're in this mess. And there is blood all around you in the tabernacle as you're going through the sacrifices. Your sin has caused a bloody mess. But we serve a God who wants to dwell with us. Here's the irony. That same blood created a space of holiness. Why? Because life was in the blood. Life is in the blood. And so this ritual sacrifice is creating both this image of our sin and this image of God's holiness. We see in the rituals and the sacrifice how they atone for our sin. The law and the tabernacle provided redemption for a people who needed to be saved. But this atonement was limited. It wasn't enough. It wasn't complete. No amount of sacrifice and ritual purity was enough. It would take an even more and a greater sacrifice than we could provide. Not on our part, but on God's part. God would be the one who would finally provide the great sacrifice. So keeping this idea in mind, we go back to Exodus 25, verse 8. Have them make me a sanctuary. So that I may dwell among them. God desires to dwell with us. How will God complete this dwelling? Well, the Gospel of John tells us. And the Word became flesh. And tabernacled with us. That's what the word means. And God tabernacled with us. And we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. God desired to dwell with us. This is mind-blowing. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Every Israelite knew the closest they would ever come to God was in the outer court. You and I, we're Gentiles. We can't even get in there. Every Jew knew the closest they would get to God, unless they were a priest, was the outer court. 
They would never get any closer. But with the coming of Jesus, this completed covenant of God, this true fulfillment of the law and the tabernacle, we see a new reality. God came to us. He dwelt with us in the form of a human being, Jesus. Think about that. In Jesus, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies is torn apart. It's ripped in two, and we are invited to dwell with him. Can you picture that? Hear this imagery in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, my friends, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. What? We can enter the most holy place? This is unbelievable. By the blood of Jesus, the bloody mess we created, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is ripped in two, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled over the doorposts, cleansing us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. If you didn't understand the law in the tabernacle, that doesn't really make much sense, does it? That is the, the glory of Hebrews. Jesus completes the story. Jesus is the incarnation, the incarnation. That means God dwelling with us. Oh, glorious good news. God wants to dwell with us. From the beginning, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, God has desired to dwell with us. Through the covenant that God is making right here at the foot of Mount Sinai with his people, God is desiring to dwell with us. To the fulfillment in Jesus and his coming, God has desired to dwell with us. And we see it all the way to the end of the story as well. This is amazing. In the last book, in Revelation, we read these words. Oh, I can hardly contain it. Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the tabernacle of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. This is the story of Exodus. This is the law. This is the tabernacle. God with us. Let us pray.